All right. How's it going, everybody? Uh, we've got a guest on Rooster and the Villain today. Very exciting. Um, we have Fred Mathis on. He's the general manager of a new squad in Maryland called the Annapolis Blues. They're playing in the NPSL. Uh, they've got a, a hot start going. They've got about 1,500 season tickets say, say, uh, sold for the spring already. Um, Fred, so so great to have you on. Would you mind telling us about yourself just a little bit? Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the intro for the Blues, too. That's my, my latest project in the soccer world that I've been around for forever in. But uh, exciting times over in Annapolis. Uh, great market. Some that's right between uh, Baltimore and D.C., so it's kind of its own unique area. It's not Baltimore. It's not D.C. It's Annapolis. And uh, we've gotten a lot of great local support over there. You mentioned the number, almost 1,500 season ticket holders. Also got a good cadre of great sponsors, local partners in that area. Um, you know, for everything from Rise Up Coffee to Watermark Journeys, the, the cruise line that's over there in the harbor, um, the Conte Tacos, uh, quite a few others that are on our website and that that uh, have really supported us well. And it, it has a real good feel to it. And we're off to a great start off the field and we get close to getting going on the field here. We just named our new head coach, Tom Harriet, the other day, and uh, he's going to get things going and be ready for uh, the start of our season next spring in May. So it looks like your office location um, beyond. Is pretty nice, you know. You're you're sitting right on the water. That's not a bad spot to be. Well, yeah, I kind of take the nautical theme. Although I'm not quite over in Annapolis right now. I live over in Northern Virginia, but I'm over there a lot. But no, this is my tiki bar. It became my ad hoc office during the uh, pandemic when everybody had to kind of reel it in and from home. And uh, the office space I had upstairs was taken over by my daughter, who had to come home and work from home here. So. She kicked me out, and I went downstairs and said, oh, I'll just set up the Tiki Bar. And it's kind of worked for me. I've been here working at this now for over a year or so, and it makes it happy. It makes it easy on a Friday afternoon just to kick back and uh, and enjoy myself a little bit, too. Yeah, you know, a Tiki Bar is not a bad look. I, I think uh, that, that home office looks better <laughs> than, than what I got going on behind me. I'm, I'm in the storage room right now, so maybe I should Tiki Bar it up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I so thanks for joining us and we'll talk more about the blues because that's at the tail end of your soccer journey. But a lot of our podcast episodes when we interview people, you know, soccer is such an interesting niche sport in America. Everyone's got like a crazy soccer journey. And I was looking back at, at your um, your write up on the Annapolis Blues website and it's just a, a rich soccer background. So I'm excited to, to dive into it. Um, I'll just give people a, a brief primer early on here so they know what we're walking into but you played goalkeeper at UCLA um, then you went to DC United were there for 17 seasons in ticketing and the service departments and went down to uh, you helped with Washington Freedom there you have a consulting company professional soccer consulting you were out in Sacramento for USL and set some records there for ticket sales uh, down to North Carolina for a little bit but I want to I want to go before all of that and talk about your youth soccer experience. Like what what was your youth soccer experience in in the U.S.? Sure, sure. Well, it's it's a long, long journey. That's for sure, as you pointed out. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate to play at UCLA and uh, was recruited there long before there were a lot of scholarships available. So essentially, I was a walk on, but uh, I was recruited by Steve Gay and. Uh, and just after he got started there, he stepped aside. The late Siggy Schmidt stepped in as my head coach there. Uh, so that was great. But but before that, I wouldn't consider my youth soccer journey kind of the same as most kids because I grew up as a Little League kid. I was uh, in Little League because my dad was a baseball player uh, when he was younger. And so he got me into Little League when I was very young, probably six, seven years old, whatever we started at. 
And I played that until up to about 12 years old. And then a lot of my friends were drifting to this new sport, soccer. There was a, a German coach in the area that had started AYSO up. And uh, his name was Willie Hagenlocker, very German. <laughs> and he started up the, the AYSO group. And we would see these crazy soccer kids out there kicking a ball around, running all over the place in the outfields of our baseball fields when we were practicing. Some of my friends started drifting over and started playing soccer, and they said, you should come out. You should, you should come play for a team for a season. So I did, and I was very fortunate. I scored a goal in my first game, and I had a couple of assists, and they're like, you're awesome. Great. You got to come back. You got to come back. So I came back, and I played for a couple of games, and then the goalkeeper that we had got hurt, and they're like, we need another goalkeeper. Can you play in goal? I'm like, well, I, you know, decent with my hands. I've played baseball. I'm like, sure, I'll give it a shot. I didn't give up a goal for about seven or eight games. Wow. And uh, they said, you know, you're it. You're a goalkeeper. You're a goalkeeper now. So I uh, took that as far as I could run with it. You know, at the time, I went through high school and club sec club uh, seasons and that. Played with uh, the Cupertino, California in the Bay Area where I grew up. Uh, played for the uh, Northern California team that was there. Didn't quite make it to the state level team. I actually got injured just beforehand. But uh, through all of that, I, I got uh, got recruited uh, by Steve Gay, as I mentioned, uh, down at UCLA. And Took it about as far as I could then. It, you know, it's kind of concerning. It's probably the reason I stayed in soccer so long is that just about the time I got out of college at UCLA, and I was a huge fan of the old NASL, the San Jose Earthquakes there in the Bay Area, where they used to draw crowds of 17, 18, 20,000 people in old Spartan Stadium that wasn't much bigger than that at the time. Um, in fact, I don't think it was even 2,000 then, and they used to pack it to the gills, and it was just amazing to, to grow up watching that. And I wanted to play professionally. I wanted to take my career from college and eventually play there. I wasn't great in college and I didn't have an illustrious career, but I thought, you know, if there were the opportunities, I'd love to do that. Well, the NASL folded right after I got out of college. So there was no professional soccer, really none at the top, top level. There were regional leagues and things like that, but it wasn't a place where you could make a living. Uh, so basically I, I decided, okay, I'm going to take my college degree and I'm going to go do something else. And I went into sporting goods and sold uh, Avia athletic shoes and Converse athletic shoes before that out in California and met with a lot of the professional teams and got into basketball and baseball and all the other sports and meeting all the athletes and all that and, and helping out. But I always said, I want to get back to soccer. If, if soccer makes a comeback again in this country, I want to get into that. So I won't be able to come back to the Washington DC area. I'd gotten married, met a, met a woman during the uh, uh, 1984 Olympics out in LA. Um, it's my wife, who's now my wife, Stella. Um, we met out there. I was working with Converse at the time. She was a friend of the chairman of the board for Converse. And we met up at cocktail parties after going out to events all day long and all that. And then we went, uh, we, we uh, dated to get uh, cross country for about nine, 10 months back and forth. We decided one of us has to give something up. And so I gave up living on the West Coast in uh, Santa Barbara at the time and enjoying the the, the, the beach life and that, and I uh, had to pack up and came back here to the Washington, D.C. area, which uh, I, I've grown to love, and I probably lived here longer now than I did out there out west. But uh, so I came back to the Washington, D.C. area, and I settled in and worked with the Washington Bullets. That's how long ago it was, back in the late 80s to the mid-90s. I worked with the Washington Bullets in the NBA because I had had, you know, some experience in selling and getting out, and I knew basketball a little bit. Uh, so I got into that, and then... Um, the 1994 World Cup rolled around and I said, well, I've got to get back to soccer. I'm going to volunteer and I'm going to work in uh, Washington here at the headquarters and I also worked at RFK Stadium, did some things at the airports with the greeting groups and all that. And it, it ignited that passion again, it got me into soccer again. And I said, this is really, I've got to do this. If they're going to create this league that they were talking about, uh, I want to be part of it. So 
I mean, I got I got to double click on the 1994 World Cup experience a bit just because, I mean, it must have been a wild time to be in America for soccer because they're planning major league soccer was supposed to be open by the time the World Cup started. But then, it you know, ended up a year later, but it, it had to be all of a sudden just like an explosion of growth that you haven't seen before. Like it, it didn't usher in soccer as, you know, the, the biggest sport in the country, but it had to have like a crazy effect on, on absolutely absolutely and and the u.s back then you know as you said was not that experienced in the game yet and what the the world cup committees that they created and i say committees because it was spread out so far it was all over the country it was in la it was in dallas it was in orlando it was in um, this area dc new york chicago really spread everywhere around the country so you had separate little committees almost in every city that then worked together to make it uh, what still is considered the most successful World Cup in history, both in terms of sponsorship and attendance and everything. Transfer to that, you just saw Qatar just finished up where everything was in basically the same city. It was all together. It was almost more like an Olympics than it was the World Cup. So much, much different back then. But yeah, it ignited the spark. And people were ready when Major League Soccer formed in 95. Well, I was fortunate during 94. I met with some of the people that were putting the teams together and they said, well, there's going to be a team in Washington, D.C. You should, should uh, get in touch with, at the time, it was Kevin Payne and Betty D'Angelo. Uh, Betty's no longer with us. Uh, Kevin is, uh, you know, uh, still in there right now. Tough, tough guy. But I met with both of them, and they said, well, we're going to put a team uh, in the D.C. area. We're going to play at RFK Stadium, where the World Cup was hosted. And we're going to have our headquarters out in Herndon, Virginia. Do you know where that is? I said, I live in Herndon, Virginia, right here. <laughs> you know, it was they our, our headquarters at what was then the old Redskins facility. Uh, now they're the commanders, but the, the Redskins facility, which was perfect for a soccer team. You know, it was an older, antiquated baseball, or I mean, football uh, training ground because it just didn't have enough space. But for soccer, it was perfect. We had rooms on the first floor, training rooms, weight rooms and that. We had second floor, had all of our front office space where I worked out of, and Kevin was there, and Betty was there, and everybody else, Stephen Zach, Jamie O'Connor, the guys that started it all up. Uh, and then we had two fields right out back. We had an old school AstroTurf field, and we had a nice turf field that Serena had built into there when he started with us as the coach. And it was a perfect setup, very really a perfect setup to get a team kicked off, uh, something that a lot of the earlier teams were envious of. Now most of the teams have these beautiful facilities that are major league soccer and that. Um, so, but it was a nice force, and it allowed us to build a real solid community, a soccer community in Northern Virginia, as well as in D.C., where we played, and over in Maryland, too. We were, we were very strong in all of the areas around here, and, and Major League Soccer, uh, you know, at that point was just starting to grow. We'd have crowds of somewhere. We had very big crowds, 20, 25,000 or so, but our average was about 16, 17,000, which wasn't too bad at the time. We yeah. were one of the, leading, one of the leading teams, but there were teams that were averaging three or 4,000 back then which, you know, is a little closer to the lower division leagues now. Um, and it took a while for Major League Soccer to catch on. It almost collapsed in 2001. They had to contract the two expansion teams, well, two teams out of the expansion that they had done. They contracted Miami and Tampa. They took basically Florida off the map during that time. And then it struggled for a few more years. It wasn't until about 2005 or six, I believe, when they started to bring in uh, Creole Salt Lake, started up, Chivas USA started then, and then it started to expand now we're what up to almost 30 teams, I think, St. Louis starts this year. Um, but I was part of DC United as it got started for 17 years that I was there all the way up to 2012. You know, tremendous, tremendous start, obviously, with the four championships in the first five years of the league, um, three championships in the first five years, and then again in 2004, 
also won Open Cups during that time. We won something that was known as the Inter-American Cup that was between uh, the South American champion and the U.S. champion at the time, or North American champion, and so we beat Bosco da Gama. Uh, that was back in 98. Uh, you know, some tremendous, tremendous uh, occurrences on the field for a great team, but off the field, too. We felt very, very strong with those average attendances that were up around 17, 18,000 and some big crowds, too. We had uh, the very first game that David Beckham ever played in this country, played at TC United, uh, got in in the second half, and we had a packed house of 48,000 people at RK at the time. It had been downsized a bit, uh, getting ready for baseball to come in, but uh, Beckham came in and just saw how excited the entire area became around one single player. You know, we were getting constant threats about, I'm getting a refund. He's not going to play. Give me my money back. You know, well, we didn't sign you up to, to watch David Beckham play DC United. We signed you up to have the LA Galaxy play DC United. The Galaxy are here. David is here. If he gets in the game, that's up to their coach. We'll see what happens. He got in the game. The place was electric. It was amazing. And I think really set that spark not only here, but around the country to kind of take it to the next level. Um, the other guy that we had was a local guy that came in. This is back in 2004. Now, Freddie Adu. Freddie Adu was a phenom. You know, this was just as the internet was getting going and uh, Facebook wasn't even up yet, but people were starting to send videos around and that. And you had these phenomenal highlights of Freddie Adu, this young kid who was only 12 or 13 years old at the time, playing in Maryland and playing in different competitions around and that. And everybody was amazed that this is going to be the next American star. He was going to take this, this sport to the next level because he's going to be the star. Uh, well, Freddie came in and he was a young just, kid. Yeah. He was 15. That's just crazy. It's just crazy. 14 when we signed him, 15, I think we played his first game. Yeah. Uh, but again, the same phenomenon, almost the same phenomenon you have with Beckham, that you saw the pull of this sport and the passion you could get in fans who were behind that. Freddie didn't have an illustrious career, but he certainly was there in the beginning and things would have been done a little differently. And Freddie's a great guy and he's still involved in the game, I know, uh, around these areas. Um, but that, all those type of stories like that, Gave me the passion and just reaffirmed that I made the right decision to get back into soccer back in the, the, the 90s uh, when it started back up in this country. And uh, then it, it uh, as anything does, it changes. 2012, new ownership came into D.C. United here locally. And uh, myself and several of the other executives were sort of uh, said, thank you, but uh, we're moving another way. And we went off on our own. And uh, that's where you mentioned Sacramento. Uh, basically, I was kind of thinking what I was going to do next. I wasn't sure. And. Uh, ran into a guy that had worked with us uh, at DC United who was uh, working with a new company called Relevant Sports that was putting on the what is now called the International Champions Cup uh, with international games that come into the country from uh, overseas and, and play here during the summer months and that and almost compete to them with Major League Soccer games. Uh, well, they were putting him on out in the Bay Area where I had grown up. And he said, uh, he said, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm just kind of looking for the next thing. And he goes, what do you know about the Bay Area? So well, I grew up there. He goes, oh, that's perfect. I need somebody to go out and run a game. Uh, it's going to be Juventus against Everton in our series. And this one, Timmy Howard played for Everton. said, uh, can you be out in San Francisco uh, as soon as you can? I said, sure. So the next week I was in San Francisco. I spent a month and a half there helping build this game up. We built it up from almost nothing in the stands to somewhere around 35,000, I think was our final attendance number. Uh, in about a six, seven-week period that I was there. So, you know, not that I was entirely in charge of that, but certainly we got the passion started and we got things going in San Francisco. It was also in the baseball stadium, which was another tough sell, too. It's not a soccer stadium. But I met these guys from Sacramento uh, that were putting a team together uh, that became Sacramento Republic while I was out in San Francisco. And they said, you know, we'd love somebody to come up here to Sacramento and 
help us get this started up here because we're baseball guys. We don't, you know, a little bit of irony there. We're baseball guys. We don't know much about soccer. You know soccer. We've got a new head coach. His name's Brecky. He's a pretty big shot in the, in the U.S. national team, and you know now he's he's going to be our head coach. And you know we think we got a good thing up here, but uh, would you be interested in coming up? So I went up there to a, a international game that they had. Uh, it was uh, Norwich of England playing a, a Mexican team, Dorados, uh, Sinaloa, uh, and they drew fourteen thousand people in a baseball stadium. Same thing. And I said, well, wow, this is definitely, this could go. This this could take off. So we talked and I ended up going out there and I spent three years on contract with them helping to get Sacramento Republic started. And it was another phenomenon. I mean, it was, we started the first three games in an older stadium in Sacramento and drew 20,000 people a game uh, at the USL level. USL had its struggles at the time. It was called USL Pro. They were dwindling in numbers of teams and they had, uh, uh, not much going on, but Sacramento was an expansion club, and we just lit the world on fire out there. It was amazing. Community support everywhere, a great staff working with us for everything, and it just took off. The first three games, we had to play in an older stadium while we were getting our new stadium built, which is a temporary pop-up stadium. But uh, the 20000 a game just ignited everybody, including Major League Soccer. Don Garber even uh, you know, made some mentions and made a trip out to, to see what was going on in Sacramento, why it was so special. And uh, from that, we went to the smaller stadium there of only 8,000, sold it out every single game the first year, expanded it to 11,000, sold it out every game for the next couple of years I was there. Um, and it just it told Major League Soccer that, hey, this is a market that you guys are missing. You should have a team here. Uh, they awarded the team after I had left there, and then ownership pulled back out of it. And, you know, they're still sitting on the sidelines waiting to hear now while they watch Minnesota and then uh, – this one is Las Vegas or San Diego. They're talking about St. Louis got a team, Charlotte got a team. All these other cities have gotten teams ahead of Sacramento. I think they're still holding out hope that something can happen there. And I think it really would be a great market if it did happen and come together. But, you know, it's, it's seeing what happens there. Um, yeah, I mean, so I came back from Sacramento and, uh, yeah. Go ahead. It seems like you guys set the world on fire in Sacramento. It's kind of like one of the gold standard teams of USL, especially with the open cup run this year, which was a lot of fun to watch as a, as a neutral, but you know, what were some of the secrets behind Sacramento? Because now you see teams like, you know, like you at the blues coming around the Bobcats and all these local teams are popping up with professional aspirations. You know, what worked in Sacramento that, that people can take elsewhere to, to grow their clubs and, and fan base. Well, you mentioned the word secret. I can't give away all the secrets, but uh, no, no. actually the way soccer is, we do trade secrets a lot. We, we, we try and work into all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, the, in Sacramento, it was very much like D.C. in the early days. It was community-based. You know, we knew that we weren't just going to run the flag up the flagpole and say, hey, come join Sacramento Republic or come to D.C. United. We had to go out and get in the, in the community. We had to go out and meet with families and kids soccer fields. We had to do things in the pubs, you know, pints with the coach, uh, all of the different things you have to do every single day. We had to build a good, strong supporters club and not that we built it, they built it. The supporters themselves came to us and said, we want to get involved. What do we do? And we said, band together and, and create a name for yourself and, and build it up. In DC, it was um, the Screaming Eagles came to us first and then Bada Brava, which became a, a, a Latin-based sort of supporters group there. Um, and then in Sacramento, it was called the Tower Bridge. Same thing. They came to us. We've got ideas. Great. Run with them. We're not going to tell you what to do. We just want you to buy tickets. We want, you to, want your friends to buy tickets. 
and want you to create the atmosphere and you to create the culture. Got them going and they were huge. In Sacramento, we were up to about a thousand uh, a game at one point there when we first started out. It's been a little bit over the years, but they still had a good, strong following. In D.C., it was a lot of the same. In the early years, it was you know, kind of small and growing and growing, and there was a bunch of different clubs. And then the Screen Eagles bought a Bravo really jumped up. It was like a thousand apiece every game for them. And the other clubs would sprinkle in a few hundred here and there. And then that gave you the atmosphere. Then you went to the youth soccer markets and you brought in the youth soccer families and the crowds there. And that gave you more numbers to follow behind it. And you always had a season ticket base. They're just fans of the game, whether it was a game where they grew up in the country they came from or whether it was something they had learned through playing it here in this country or observed it and watched it here in this country. So you built around all of that. And then pretty soon the corporate market starts to come together because everybody that plays soccer or uh, works in, in corporations and that companies around your area generally has kids who play soccer or they are involved in the sport. So you can draw the, comp- the companies in, the corporations in, and that just allowed you to sell more higher end tickets and hospitality and all of that. So you kind of blend all that together. And then you also go into ethnic markets. I mentioned in DC, we did that through Bada Brava to start with, but we also had some really strong connections throughout the, the different Latino communities, the Salvadoran communities, Honduran communities, Guatemalans and that in the East. Out West, it was much more the Mexican-American company, uh, community rather, there that we built into. Uh, but an ironic thing in, in Sacramento, because it's such an agricultural area in the middle of the state, uh, the Mexican-American groups that we had gone after to work with were generally much higher in terms of they'd been second and third generation Mexican-Americans. So whereas dad or grandpa might have followed Chivas, uh, Guadalajara, or Monterrey, or, or Cruz Azul, the kids that were growing up were like, hey, I'm going to follow this new team, Sacramento Republic. It's in my hometown. This is where I grew up. This is where I'm from. You know, we had this blend of cultures there in Sacramento, too, that, that makes soccer what it is, you know, putting it together. Uh, you know, all of that. And then, like I said, just a great team working out there. Warren Smith and Joe Wagner were uh, kind of the founders of the team. Uh, but then we had a really strong staff that was out you know, every day in the marketing side and that and, and the ticketing side to build that up and uh, got it to the level um, that, like I said, Major League Soccer took notice. And they were very, very interested, very serious, and actually, actually awarded the team out there. Um, so great experience there. Again, I was back out in California. Uh, I still lived in D.C. or this area, Northern Virginia, and was going back and forth as often as I could. My wife was coming out there to visit, but that wasn't anything new to us. As I mentioned, we got married uh, kind of long-distance style when I was in L.A., and she was back here at D.C., so uh, kind of worked for us. Um, but everything comes to an end. I came back here, and uh, that's when I had to really kind of pivot a little bit because, you know, I was getting, starting to get phone calls from all over the place. You know, Sacramento was such a great run for you, and you did great in PC all those years, just as you asked me, what, what made it secret and all that. So I have a handful of phone calls like that and started to realize, look, this is something I could probably build into a business for myself. It's not something I do by myself, but I work with teams around the country now to try and counsel them and help them and point the way so that they can grow. A uh, great call from Frankie Yallop, uh, who was opening uh, Fresno FC. He was going to be the general manager there. And um, he asked me to come out there and get them started. So I spent three weeks, three months rather, back out there in uh, Fresno, California, got them off the ground. Uh, that kind of went a different way. They couldn't get their stadium deal worked out in that. And they're now in Monterey and doing a great job there uh, with that club. Um, but it, it got me on the way. And then I uh, also met with the guys in New Mexico, Ron Patel called me up and said, hey, we want to emulate what Sacramento did. You know, you have some time. Can you come down? So I went down to Albuquerque, met with Ron Patel at New Mexico United and uh, helped them in the early planning phases for a couple of weeks there. 
uh, and then stayed in touch with Ron throughout the first few months before as they got things going. And still, Ron and I talk a lot. But New Mexico is another one of those clubs that's caught lightning in a bottle and just figured out. They become a very community-based team down there in Albuquerque. And, uh, you know, if MLS ever wants to expand further, that would be a tremendous market, I would think, too, to grow it to the next level. Uh, but they've really taken USL by storm. Uh, then I did some other things, uh, you know, back here in this home area in Northern Virginia, NPSL club, the Virginia Beach team uh, down there had me working with them for a bit. Uh, also just, you know, consulting, talking with other teams around the country on, on single day sort of consulting projects and that, but always still involved in the game. Uh, and then uh, I met uh, Kirk Johnson, who was an old friend from the old MLS days, uh, working down in North Carolina, with North Carolina FC. And uh, tied also to the, the Carolina Courage, uh, which was a nice, nice get. I went down there and consulted for about six months there, back and forth. And they eventually said, look, we want somebody to do this full time down here. Um, you know, what would it take? And so I gave them a, a number and they said, you got it. Come on down. So I, I went down there and actually got an apartment down there. So I was down there like three, four days a week, back here on the weekends, back down there, back and forth, back and forth. Got really, really old, but it was great. Um, another good run there. I got a chance to get back into women's soccer because I had helped, as you mentioned earlier, the freedom and then the spirit a little bit here in the D.C. area when they both got started. Uh, but I was able to work with Carolina Courage. They won the, the uh, championship there, the NWSL championship, the year I was there in 2019. So I have a ring from them, and I have the four rings from D.C., and I have the ring from Sacramento, too. So I get six rings for what's happened on the field, which – I mean, I've been as much a part of, but you're still part of the team. So that was kind of nice. Uh, and Dave Sarakin, who was an old friend from DC United days, had taken over as the head coach at North Carolina FC, the men's team. Uh, so it was another homecoming of sorts there, getting back together with Dave and, and his wife and family that were there uh, too as well. Um, that was going along really well. We were growing the base there. And then 2020 rolled around in the pandemic. And, uh, you know, it was really tough to express how to sell tickets and, and, Get a staff together to work on selling tickets when they're being told by all the authorities and the boards and that that you can't have anybody in your stadium. Uh, so now what do you do? You know, and so it was time to part ways, come back home, and uh, I've kind of been doing this for the last couple of years now. And then Michael Hitchcock, who is uh, was a, a, a corporate sales rep for us at DC United when I was there, I actually hired him when he came in back in the, the late '90s as well, and worked there a couple of years before he went on his journey to Denver and then to LA and then to Dallas. Uh, well, he went kind of the same sort of a journey in just different cities, uh, but he started his own consulting company as well too when he was finished with Dallas, uh, FC Dallas down there. And uh, he had started all these teams up around the country in the NPSL level and he's done really well with them. And I saw what he was doing in Annapolis and I just reached out to him and said, Mike, you need any help with anything? Uh, I'm here, I'm about an hour or so away. I'll be glad to help you out, you know, and get you started here. And so we talked back and forth a little bit. I did a job fair for him where I represented the team. And he says, you know, I really need someone with your experience that can kind of help run this thing and help get it started. What do you think about being the general manager? <laughs> I was like, bitch, you know, I'm kind of at the end of this journey here. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not there yet, but I can kind of see the end of it. I'm not sure I want to be a general manager. He goes, ah, you know, I got all this stuff, all these resources in Texas to help you out. Be able to bring some staff in there to get you going locally. You know, it'll be a blast. It'll be great. You know, let's, why don't you come on board? Be the, be the general manager. So it's just very persuasive. And here I am. You know, I've got the yeah. I see the blues kid. Uh, blues yeah, the jerseys blues on, and, uh, on right and, now, and and we're yeah. and we're and we're doing doing really well. As we mentioned, you know, fifteen hundred season tickets, and it's 
you know, not to that 20,000 mark that we had in Sacramento or DC yet, but we're getting there. You know, it's, uh, we're playing at Navy Marine Stadium, start up next May. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for some pretty decent sized crowds and a great atmosphere there and trying to build it in the same model and we'll see where it ends up. Yeah. Yeah. From the outside perspective. And that's my journey. There you it's go. It's so exciting to see you guys come in the area and immediately hit the ground running. I believe that soccer in, is about to explode in the country. I, I think people were saying that back in 1995, as, as you could probably attest to, but I think with the way the European leagues are 1975. What's that? 75. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll they see. were saying it back in 1975. They were saying soccer will be the sport of these and then the nineties and keeps going, but it's, yeah. it's getting there. It's a slow grow, but it keeps growing. Yeah. And it's people, you know, like yourself and like, like, Mr. Hitchcock that have been in the game since, you know, early nineties that are, that are doing an awesome job growing the sport. And then I think with European leagues on TV and the growth of MLS and the growth of USL, like, I think it's, I think it's snowball effect. And now that snowball is getting larger and larger. And, and I think the beautiful game is here to stay in America. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, you mentioned those names like Hitch, Kevin Payne, there's so many others that have been part of this journey for so long. Mark Washo is another one. I know you know Mark. He's uh, now working with Flower City Union in Nisa, which is another club that I started with. I mentioned them, uh, Stumptown down in Nisa, not one of the more successful parts of my journey, but part of the journey just the same. Uh, but uh, Mark Washo is another one that's been along for all those years. Mike Harloff is in D.C. United for all the same years I was there. Uh, quite a few others that I can pick up York out in Sacramento was great and all of our marketing and all that there. She's now become a consultant that helped uh, another dozen or so teams since uh, Sacramento. She left Sacramento to help out with things. Princess Saki did a lot of our sponsorship stuff out that way. So many others that, you know, forget about sometimes, but every now and then they'll pop up and you'll, you'll talk with them, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the media side too, as well. I've, I've been good friends with Stephen Goff for all those years. Brian Strauss, who was an intern of ours at DC United, went up and worked at Sports Illustrated and Washington Post as well. He was a colleague of Grant Wall's, uh, He's over in Qatar still now. I just reached out to him the other day to give my condolences for Grant's passing. I knew Grant, uh, I won't say well, but certainly in passing. Mm -hmm. uh, each time he'd be in D.C., we'd, we'd usually have a small conversation. That He knew what we were doing on, on the ticketing side of things and the crowd attendance side, so we'd always have some questions in that. He's a fantastic guy. Just yeah. so sad, you know, to have that happen during the World Cup. Uh, but, Unbelievable. You know, there's there's tremendous number of people that have been around as long as I have in this game that, that a lot of times get overlooked and, and they're the ones that you, know, you can point back to and say, if they didn't do what they did back then in the 90s and the early 2000s or whatever, we probably wouldn't be at the level we're at now. And we wouldn't be hosting another World Cup in four years, certainly either, because you had to have had that sustained growth over that time to get it to the point. You know? And then the players and coaches too as well. I mean, people don't realize how little MLS players made back in the day. Uh, I mentioned DC United uh, and Redskins Park now, the commander team name, but they still <laughs> the street's still there. It's called Redskin Drive, where the the building still is, uh, and it's actually become a youth center and a church and that now. But um, that was our home, and we used to do cookouts on Friday afternoons. It's Friday today. We used to do cookouts Friday afternoons, and every time we do it, all of a sudden here the players would show back up. They'd already had their training session early in the morning. This was late Friday on an afternoon and players would show up and they'd come and they'd get hot dogs and hamburgers from us. And we'd do cookouts and that sort of a team bonding event for the team. 
a lot of times we weren't inviting these players. Just heard there's free meals at the state, at the training ground. Let's go back over there because they weren't making enough money. They were yeah. they were having to take a second job. They were having to work camps. They were having to do all kinds of other things just to pave the way. I mean, you had some bigger guys that were making decent money, you know, from the national team and that. A John Harks, a Marco Echeverri, Jaime Moreno. Those guys came in and made a decent amount of money, but they they weren't getting rich either, really, out of that. You know, it was a growth. It was they had to give up a lot to start MLS and, and be part of that. And then, you know, I get back into the USL and it's the same thing all over again. You've got guys coming in that are basically there just to be seen. I remember reading a story about Chris Wondolowski in his early playing days. I think he said he made something like 13 grand his first couple seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was the starting salary for a brand new player, first team player that uh, was just basically on the bench at the time. And then Wando obviously went on to great fame and certainly made a lot more in his later years. But yeah, there's a, a story for out of DC United days, uh, Troy Perkins, who um, stepped in when Nick Romando went down towards ACL. Uh, Troy Perkins stepped in as our goalkeeper. He was a backup at that point. Had a phenomenal season right afterwards, uh, finishing up in Nick and then came back the next year. And I think was even goalkeeper of the year or was in the voting for goalkeeper of the year that year. But when Tory Force started with us, he was making that same $12,000 pay. And he was part of something they used to call the goalkeeper pool, where MLS paid these goalkeepers basically just to be ready. So that if a goalkeeper went down at a team, they could ship them to wherever they went to. And we always used to kid, there's like, there's a goalkeeper pool somewhere. There's just a pool with a bunch of goalkeepers sitting around having drinks and waiting for the phone to ring. But uh, Troy was working at the, or was there uh, and training with us, and John Harks came by the training ground. He wasn't playing with the team anymore, but he came by and he was out there, and he was, I think he was working with Fox at the time, or maybe ESPN doing some interviews, and Troy was there, and he yells out at Troy. He goes, hey, Troy, I hear you're working at Galleons, a sporting goods store down the way. I need some new boots. Can you get me a discount? <laughs> and it was true. Troy was working at Galleons Sports and selling shoes and sporting goods uh, part-time after he would leave the training ground each day. And uh, Harksy was kind of ribbing him, but it was it was true. He was like, "Hey, you know, uh, you know, these guys need to be paid better. They're uh, they, they've got a lot of work in front of them, and they've they've uh, you know paid their dues coming up through the ranks to get to this level. They should be taken care of very much as as you see on the women's side of the sport now. That there's finally some equal pay, and that the NWSL is getting serious about what they're doing in terms of paying their players as well as taking care of their players and looking out for their best interests in that too." It's the evolution of the sport in this country, and it's great to see. You know, and, and the group that I'm with now in Annapolis and the NPSL is kind of going through that same growing spurt as well. And that although most of these players are coming in on an amateur contract, they're not being paid any money. They're doing it for the opportunity. They're doing it to be seen. They're doing it to get their game back out there and, and play at that level where uh, another team higher up can, can bring them in eventually, so probably, and, and then they'll make some money at doing this and can make a living at it. Very much like. I wanted to do very back in the, way back in the very beginning of my career, but there weren't the opportunities that you have now. You know, there was no NPSL or USL or that for me to go play. And like I said, yeah, there were some regional leagues in that, but essentially you were doing it just because you loved the game to play then. It wasn't something you could make a living at. Uh, and now, fortunately, through some of the things I've done and through many of those other people that I mentioned, there is that opportunity at the major league level with the 30 odd teams at USL level, USL one, USL two, where you've got. You know, what is it, dozens and dozens of teams now. And those levels, NPSL has 95 teams in it, or 96, I think we're up to now around the country. Uh, again, more opportunities for more people to be part of the game they love and be part of, the, of this game and help it grow. 
Yeah, a while back I interviewed a, a guy that played on Michigan State right around year 2000. And he was talking about how they're just, you know, he wanted to keep playing after college, but there wasn't many options. So, like you said, the, the, the sport has grown tremendously in that so many players after college do have an opportunity to find a semi-professional team like the Blues or like Christos out in Baltimore. And there's, there's, or even, you know, the Bobcats are, tr- are giving it a, a run at professional soccer, which is something that people didn't have the option of 20 years ago. So it's fun to see where the sport is at now. Yeah, so many more opportunities and all the way down to the youth level too. While the youth, obviously, they're not being paid for playing that. They're loving to play the game. But there's a whole coaching industry, scouting industry, recruiting for college industry that's out there that's built around the whole youth soccer movement and growth. And so there's people who can make a living doing that as well. And for those youth players, the end goal for a lot of them that are playing is to get into college and get a scholarship. There's so many more scholarships in the collegiate game. Now, like I said, when I was playing, we had two scholarships at UCLA. And they were basically either saved for national team players that came in, or they were split up amongst a dozen or so players that were starters and all that. So I came in as a walk-on, essentially. I was recruited. They wanted me to come play there, but I had to get in with my grades first. And then, okay, you got the grades, great, you're here. We want you to play on the team, too, and, and be part of that. And I had to kind of work my way up through the ranks there and, and made it eventually uh, you know, to the first team. But again, no scholarship money really there. It was you know, getting help with things like books and parking and a little bit of the tuition, but it wasn't a, there's a full ride for four years. You just didn't have that in Saco back then. And you're starting to see that more and more now. And then Title IX as well really kicked in as more and more schools started to add women's soccer to, to their programs uh, to match up with the, the men's sports too that were out there. A lot more scholarship opportunities on the women's side of the game too. So the girls were out there playing youth soccer and running around in the fields had this goal in mind that, hey, I want to get to college, I want to get a scholarship so they can all their time and effort into that and their family support them in that too yeah i mean yeah it's i i do wonder where the game will be after 2026 and then looking forward like 2036 2046 i yeah it'll be fun to to watch the game continue to grow yeah yeah um i did have one final question were you involved in the usl to baltimore campaign at all a couple couple years back only in commenting on whether I thought it would go or not there. Gotcha. I, had, uh, I had somebody call me up about, uh, I think right after I had left Sacramento, uh, again, one of those ones picking my brain. What do you think yeah. about Baltimore and pro soccer? Lot, yeah. And yeah. so uh, we had a good conversation, and I, my opinion then, I think, was, yeah, it absolutely should be in Baltimore. It's a good-sized city. It's got great uh, soccer, both international soccer around the area. It's you know historic, and that there's the Maryland Old Timers Association that's up that way. Uh, some great teams, as you mentioned, like Christos and that. Uh, I definitely think USL should should uh, pursue that. I think they have. I think there's been more discussions with some groups up that way. Even in D.C. United, this is something that didn't get out much. I think there might have been some articles written about it. When we couldn't get to an agreement with District of Columbia on a new stadium location, we were looking to move out of our arcade stadium. We knew it was getting older. We knew that it had a lot of work to be done, and we were starting to look around D.C. for areas that we could build a stadium. We weren't having a lot of headway making a lot of headway with D.C. itself. We started looking at Prince George's County. We were looking at Northern Virginia. We even looked at Baltimore. And there was actually a pretty serious plan on the table in Baltimore at one point to build a stadium just south of downtown there, um, have D.C. relocate itself up there to Baltimore, which would have been very interesting. How do you call a team D.C. United when it's actually, you know, closer to Baltimore or in Baltimore itself? Uh, that would have been an interesting chapter. And 
you know, who knows if it was just a football that was being kicked around back then. Uh, but it was mentioned way back in, this would have been 2005 or six, I think that was. Uh, there's probably some articles there. Stephen Goff, I think, even commented on it at one point, too, about how it, it actually could work because it was in an area where you get D.C. fans and you get Baltimore fans, a lot like the Baltimore Orioles did when uh, the Senators moved out of D.C. They basically sort of absorbed D.C. as part of their marketing, and the Orioles became the Orioles, not the Baltimore Orioles. Now it's shifted back, and you have the Washington Nationals, Baltimore Orioles, you know, pretty tense uh, rivalry between their fans and that going, even though they're in different leagues, but, uh, you know, Baltimore and Washington are definitely two different markets. And I think uh, in USL terms, it would be very smart for them to put a team up that way. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And yeah, I'm not going to keep it too much longer, but I, I do want to talk more about the blues. Um, the ownership group is impressive. Uh, you know, you've got, um, you know, Steve, uh, Dave Johnson, who's the play by was the play by play guy for DC United for so long. And Kyle Beckerman, former U S men's national team player, uh, just an impressive group. So I would assume the club has some pretty lofty ambitions. Are, are you able to enlighten us on what those ambitions are at this point? Um, no, because I don't know exactly what they are yet. We're, we're kind of, uh, I won't say going by the seat of our pants, but that's what it's felt like in these first couple of months that I've been involved in it. Um, I know that Hitch probably has uh, the ambition of, it, of bringing this up to be one of the strongest NPSL teams there are out there. Whether or not it jumps to the next level, uh, to USL or to, to any higher than that, I think that's kind of, you have to just let the market decide. You know, a lot of times the first new, first year team jumps up, um, we'll do really well off the field, we'll hopefully do well on the field too when we get to that point. But there, as you know, there's no promotion relegation in this country. So we could be the best team in the entire country at NPSL and nobody from USL is going to send us a thing saying, congratulations. Now you're playing up against, uh, you know, Richmond and Charleston and uh, Tormenta or whatever in USL one, you know, you don't just automatically move up. That comes with a lot of dollars uh, and a lot more dollars than what we've already kind of put in through those great investors we have locally in that uh, to go back to them and say, Hey, you remember how much you put in at this level, which was not a ton of money when in top dollars. And I don't want to comment on who put in how much or whatever, but it's, you know, and nobody is, are the billionaires that are out there. There's no Phil Anschutz's or uh, Robert Kraft's or Lamar, uh, Hunt's. or Lamar Hunt's around anymore that uh, are, are investing in NPSL. Um, so you'd have to go back to that group and you'd have to bring in other people too to jump to that next level because it's the only relegation that exists is buying into it. And now USL1, I don't know what the latest figures are, but I would estimate it's probably in the 5 to $10 million range to get a USL1 team. To get a USL championship team, it's probably up in the 15 to 20, maybe even higher levels now. Plus, the planning is so much further that you need to have a stadium plan in place. You've got to try and build somewhere between a 10 to 15,000 seat stadium at that level too, at championship level, very much the way Major League Soccer is put in their restrictions, not restrictions, but their requirements to bid for a team there too. Not only do you have to pay that 300 plus million dollar entry fee at MLS, you also have to have a full stadium plan in place and you've got to have all of your other uh, finances and that all covered so that you're spending upwards of half a billion dollars or more before you even kick a ball in MLS at USL championship. That's getting upwards closer of, uh, you know, probably 20 million before you kick the ball. USL one, it's probably in the 10 million before you kick a ball and PSL. It's quite a bit less than that. So that's one of the uh, intriguing parts of the NPSL is that you can start a local community club uh, without tons and tons of money. So you're not just pouring money down something that may or may not go 
you have a chance to build it. You have a chance to work with the local communities to build it up and get it to that point. Um, but yeah, then it's just a matter of how strong it is. And if there is enough interest by the ownership group at that point, we can look at some of the alternatives and uh, you know, try and move it from there. I don't know that I'll be a part of the picture at that point. I, I didn't take this on as a long-term project. I took it on as a, let's get it going. Let's see where it is after year one. And uh, Hitch and I will have some more discussions as we get to that point, I'm sure. But uh, like I said, so far, so good. We're, we're looking good off the field. And uh, we think that with Colin in place as a head coach, we're going to do some great things on the field. We'll have tryouts coming up here soon. He's already <laughs> recruiting, even though he doesn't officially take charge until sometime next spring, uh, March or April. Uh, we're st- we're already on the path to start identifying players that play with us. Yeah, I'm, I, like I said earlier, I, I'm just excited, but to have you all in this market, and I think you, from the out- outside perspective, looks like you're doing everything right. So good luck in your first season. I'm I'm looking forward to heading out to the stadium and and checking out the Blues. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. I appreciate what you did too during the World Cup. I know that. Uh, you're not uh, um, you're a modest guy. You're not going to go out there and, and blow your own horn much. But I think the World Cup pop up was a fantastic idea, trying to capitalize on the World Cup as it came around this time and uh, put in a place there over in Colombia at SoFi Indoor that had just a nice setup uh, with all the screens and the, the couches. And that I know you probably would have loved to have a lot more people show up and be part of it all. But at least those people that were there probably at the time of their life watching the games together. And it's been an exciting World Cup. I know. All the, the political things aside, and we mentioned Grant Wall's passing, uh, sort of the dampers on things, uh, but the celebration of the sport itself, watching the Argentinians now celebrate getting into the final, the French trying to repeat, watching the Morocco fans just go crazy on their run all the way through, watching the U.S. fans kind of come around to it. You know, I was in a place in Annapolis, we were doing a viewing party uh, there, and uh, just listening to the crowd comment, you could tell the true soccer people that had followed yeah. the team for a lot of years. And you could tell the people that it just sort of kind of took on this new sport, you know, like yelling the things like you hear on the side of a youth soccer field sometimes. <laughs> Boot it! What are you going backwards for? You know, yeah. Screw it! Shoot it! Shoot it! You know, it's just, you know, interesting to watch that, but welcoming. I think a lot more than we have in the past. In the past, soccer's kind of had its almost elitism and the need to learn the game. You need to really follow the game overseas and follow it here if you're going to be a fan and all that. Now I think we're much more welcoming. And I think you mentioned earlier, 2026, it'll be interesting. I think you're going to see an awful lot of baseball, football, basketball, hockey fans start to migrate to become soccer fans, not just for the World Cup, but leading up to it as well and starting to follow players and follow what local teams are doing and and get a lot more involved and invested in this sport over these next four years than they really have before in the past. So... I'm yeah. excited about that part of it. Well, yeah. Thanks for the uh, shout out in the World Cup pop up, and thanks for the help from the Blues too. It was, it was fun to have you all involved, and you know, giving out some scarves and tickets, and uh, getting you out there. And you know, the U.S. games, the first two especially, were were pretty crowded out there, and there's a lot of young kids that got interested in the sport, and that was really the the goal behind it. I fell in love with soccer through the 2010 World Cup. And it was something that I was trying to give back and plant some seeds, hopefully for 2026. So yeah, thanks for the kind words and thanks for coming out. Yeah, that yeah, was awesome. And, uh, you know, I love the setup that you have there. I had, it brought back some memories of my beginnings in watching the world cup, 1974 huh. when I was in Germany after the 72 Olympics. And the only place you could see the games, they had the final, I believe on television here, but all the games leading up to that, obviously the U S wasn't in it, but any of the games leading up to that, place in Bay Area called the Cow Palace. It still stands. It was where the San Jose Earthquakes played indoor soccer for a 
few years there. The San Francisco Fog played there that were um, uh, in the old MISL uh, and indoor in that. But they put on the World Cup. They showed it in a big screen television sort of setup uh, when that technology was just starting to come around, big screen projection type stuff. So it wasn't even that clear of a picture. Huh. And it cut out a bunch of times. But we went up there to watch uh, uh, the Dutch play, Holland, uh, which is another irony that my wife is Dutch. So during this last game in the U.S. against Holland, we had a divided house here. But this was way back when Johan Cruyff was playing. And we went up to the Cow Palace with a bunch of my friends and I that played not, that played soccer together. And we watched the World Cup on a big screen with about, I guess there's probably 3,000 people in this 12,000-seat arena. But that was it. And, and the reason there were that many people was not because the sport had taken off as much is that that was the only place you could see it. So yeah. anybody who wanted to see the game anywhere had to go to this, to the Cow Palace to watch it. So That's a little bad. bit like what you started all over there again at, at World Cup pop-up. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll try to get something for 2026, I'm, I'm sure. And I did, I noticed your daughter's name was Marika. Yep. That's my daughter's middle name because I'm actually, oh, wow. uh, I'm 75% Dutch. My, my wife's 100% Dutch. Vivian uh, Ha is her, her last name. So. There you go. Yeah. My uh, wife's last name was Van Viersen and uh, my other daughter's name is Brinica. Uh, not our typical name, but it's a very Dutch-based name too, as well. And we brought them up learning the culture, and uh, they're both dual citizens, and so they can travel on a Dutch passport or a U.S. passport when they travel out of the country. Uh, yeah, go I can't play say in the that. Too, yeah, yeah, I can't say they've learned the language that well, but they. Uh, it's a it's tried. a guttural hard language to learn. Uh, my uh, father-in-law speaks it, but none none of us do. Yeah, both my in-laws speak it uh, almost exclusively to each other, and then. My wife is fluent in it. She uh, lived there till she was about seven or eight years old. And so she picked up most of the language then. And she still converses with a lot of her friends uh, that are Dutch and that in Dutch. Uh, so uh, we keep the culture going for sure. And that's why I said the other day, it was sort of a house divided and that uh, it's the first time the U.S. has played the Dutch in a, a men's World Cup. They played in a women's World Cup some years back. Uh, so we had the same thing then in the U.S. were the victors that day uh this time the dutch won out so yeah they punished us i was actually at dark horse but i didn't uh i didn't run into you i was kind of on the other side yeah. when i saw your pictures it looked like you were down in that lower section but yeah, yeah it was it a was breaking game got got punished on the counter yeah yeah it was packed and that's what i said some of those folks that i was mentioning there and the shout outs and all that you could tell they were not true dyed in the wool soccer fans yeah they've been sort of swept up in the excitement of it all by their friends who brought them but it was but, a lot of fun yeah, cool place to see a game. Uh, I'm going to yeah. check out a, a Premier League game or a Champions League game there at some point. Yeah, just a true soccer bar. Right? Yeah, it's love fun. it. Love it. Yep. It's All right, fun. Fred, thanks for your time. I, I, I appreciate it. <laughs>